All right, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. This is a story about a very unlikely dinner that Jesus gets invited to. But as most dinner parties go, or some of them, at least the ones that I'm at, things get really weird. And personally, I love this story for several reasons. One, it just reminds me again that Jesus is a real person who lived at a real time, and he did real people things. He went over to people's houses, and he ate. This is the God of this universe, the God incarnate, going to dinner at someone's house. And the second reason that I love this story is I just love awkward dinners. I just love awkwardness in general, if I'm honest, really. I'm just ADD enough that I thrive off the discomfort. I thrive off the stress. In fact, when most people start squirming in their chairs, like I start leaning in and really <laughs> getting into it. So if you've ever been to dinner with me, you've probably noticed this. You've probably seen me intentionally make it weird at some point or another. In fact, I asked a friend if I, if I do that. You know, I was like, I think I do this. Do I, do I make things weird? And they just said, that's accurate. <laughs> End quote, same demeaning intonation. Um, but I can't help it. I can't help that I love this story. I mean, this dinner has it all. It has party crashers. It has judgy people. It has mind reading. It has a prostitute. It has the, one of the most brilliant rebukes in the history of the world. And on top of that, this story has just been spiritually wrecking me all week. I love it. We got to read it. Stand up. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And she stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Here's what I love. Simon's thinking to himself, this guy can't be a prophet. He doesn't even know who this woman is. And right as that thought like crosses through his melon, Jesus just reads his mind and starts answering him. I bet it just freaked him out. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. I don't know, what is Simon going to say here? He's got nothing really to say, so he just looks at him and just says, tell me, teacher. Two people, Jesus continued, owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I wonder what she's thinking at this point. I came into your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven." as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your, son, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to grumble amongst themselves. Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, 
Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can grab a seat. So what we have here is two people each having a very unforgettable dinner with Jesus. Yet both of them are very different here. And I want to take a look and I want to step back and today organize our sermon basically around each person's day with Jesus. What was it like for Simon? What did he learn? What did he tell his grandkids about this day? What can we learn about his heart? And then I want us to go to the woman and look at her day with Jesus. How did it impact her life? And all the while, while we're looking at both, I want us to be asking, what is this saying to us today? So we're going to look at Simon's day with Jesus first, and then we're going to look at the woman's day with Jesus. You guys ready to dive in? I don't know what I'd say if you guys said no right now. That'd be really awkward. I'd love it. Uh, But you guys missed your chance, so we're pressing on. No going home early. Um, Simon's day with Jesus. Who is Simon? Who is this cute little Pharisee of our story today? Moreover, what are the Pharisees? We talk about them, we read about them, but we never really define them all that much. In fact, today's the first Sunday after New Year's. If you're coming back to the church as part of your resolution for the first time in a long time, I bet you never even heard the term Pharisee in 2014. It's not a part of our world. Who are they? The Pharisees were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They get a bad name a lot. We you know, kind of chew on them a little bit because they were opposed Jesus a lot. But these guys were guys who loved the Lord. These are guys who were committed and passionate about following God, obeying every command that he had given them. These guys knew their Bible. They would be the guys that we probably would have looked up to if they were here today. Yet this story is kind of unique because we see the Pharisees that are very, he's so, we see them so rarely uber curious about Jesus. We see him kind of standing back in the background, especially later on, judging Jesus. Is he the Messiah? Could he be asking questions, testing him? But today we see a Pharisee that's beyond just curious. He invites Jesus into his home. We don't really get what that means today, but to invite a person into your home in the ancient world was really to invite them into relationship with you. It was an invitation to really an intimate and very personal thing to be in your home, to have everyone who walks by and everyone in the city know that you've associated yourself with that person, that you've brought them into your home. And Simon here does that with Jesus. But why? I think he's really curious. I think he's heard the tales. He's heard people talking about Jesus being the Messiah, and he's got to know, is this guy for real? I want to have him over, have him in my house. I want to see how he interacts with people. I want to know. I think that he actually thinks that there's a shot that Jesus is the Messiah here. And so Simon invites him in, and he's surrounded by friends, and they're reclining at the table. And I don't know what they talked about. I don't know if they laughed and had light conversation, or they just dove right in and started getting into heavy things. But I do know a little bit of what it looked like, because the Bible tells us that he was reclining at the table with Jesus. And what is that? In the ancient world, you guys probably know this, but there weren't tables and chairs, kind of like what you guys are sitting in right now, but they recline. What does it look like? I've got a picture. I did a little research. What it looks like to recline at the table. (laughs) That's not it. Someone's playing a joke on me. No, I'm kidding. I, I put that in there. All right, next one. 
This is a very Greek picture of it. I mean, it's, it's got a lot of gold, a lot of dancing. It probably was very minimalist compared to this, but the positioning is correct. They're laying on one side. Their feet are away from the table that's in the middle. Their heads are all close together. This is what I want you guys to picture. They're in a room together. There's probably, the windows are open. The door is open for ventilation, for natural light. They didn't have electricity, but also so that everybody could see. If you were a friend of the host, but not close enough to be invited, you could even sneak in and sit along the wall on the outside and listen, but not take part in the conversation. And I keep picturing all week that door with just the sun pouring in and imagining the moment when everyone's reclined around the table and a figure stepped into that doorway, unable to be recognized, just silhouetted by the light behind them, but a female figure. And I wonder, as she stepped in a little bit further, if the conversation just stopped and a silence fell over the room and the eyes darted uncomfortably to Simon, the host, what's he going to do about this unwanted visitor? How is he going to respond? Because as she steps in closer, it'd be more and more recognizable. The tear tracks on her cheek wouldn't disguise the fact that this was the local prostitute crashing the dinner of a very prestigious religious leader in Simon. A woman that's so utterly defined by her profession that Luke doesn't even give her a name. He just calls her the sinful woman. But this woman, undeterred by the judgmental glares of everybody, she just heads straight for Jesus and just collapses on his feet no longer able to control herself or restrain the emotion anymore, she begins sobbing and the tears fall on Jesus' feet like raindrops on a leaf. In fact, in the original language, that's the exact picture. It's showering down upon Jesus' feet. The salty tears mixing with the dust of the day and forming little mud trails running down his feet. And aware of it, this woman does a very shameful thing. She grabs the ribbon from her hair and she undoes it and she begins to take her hair and the locks and mop up the mess on Jesus' feet. And I wonder how the guests responded as she did the most undignified thing of all. She began to kiss Jesus' dirty feet and pour perfume upon them. That word for kiss isn't just a light peck, it is unemotional, just kissing and peppering him. It's the same word used of the prodigal son when he returns and God throws his arms around him and the father begins to kiss his son. And I don't know if Jesus stopped the conversation and looked at this woman or if he just continued on like this was perfectly natural, normal, and acceptable, but Matthew lets us know that the disciples were indignant. This was a spectacle. It was embarrassing. The money from this perfume that was just being wasted on Jesus' feet could have fed the poor. And Simon, the host, not the disciple, he's no doubt embarrassed. This is in his home. This scene is taking place. And he looks at Jesus and Jesus' response. And he just kind of like closes the book on his investigation. This man can't be the Messiah. In verse 39, he says... 
He thinks to himself, this is Simon, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. He basically seals up the investigation and says he can't even be a prophet, let alone the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, the Messiah, because he can't even recognize a prostitute when he sees him. And why does that matter? Why does it matter? Because to Simon, Jesus can't even spot that she's not like the rest of the room. She's not like everyone else who's there. A prophet should know her unworthiness to approach him. And this one response by Simon tells us everything we need to know about his view of the Messiah. But even more so, it tells us everything we need to know about Simon's entire worldview. How he views everything that happens on this earth. Simon believes that God is for the good. Which I think if we're honest today is a very American way of looking at things. In America today, we say it a lot this way. I have a lot of friends who talk to me and say this. But basically, it sounds like this. All that matters in this world and the next is that you're a good person. That's all that really matters. This might be the most popular religion in America today. It's moralism. I think statistically, it's all over the church too, but statistically in a room this size, there are probably a lot of us that believe this, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, that's the belief that we take. And I understand why it's kind of enticing. Let me give a little rundown on what it sounds like. It sounds like this. It doesn't matter what you believe so much as, as what you do. Talk is cheap. Actions speak louder than words. So whether you follow Mohammed or Jesus or John Smith or Buddha, that doesn't matter quite as much as whether or not you're kind, whether or not you love, or if you're a judgmental person or a hateful person. Just be a good person and you'll be fine in this life and the next. It's a very popular belief today. And a lot of family members that this is where they hang their hat religiously. But there's a problem with this view. There's several problems. I want to highlight one. There's no standard. There's no measurement. How do I know that I'm a good person? How do I know that I'm good enough? The Bible speaks to this. It says there's no one righteous. No, not even one. And you say, well, that's kind of depressing, isn't it? No. I'm telling you right now, that's the most freeing thing in the entire world. We need a standard even when it tells us that we've failed. Without a measuring stick, how do we know that we're good enough? How do we know? We look around, right? We look to others. We compare horizontally, me to you. Well, I'm, I'm better than this person, and I'm better than that person, but I'm not as good as her, but who is? I mean, she's like a saint, right? And we begin to look around the room and make sure that we're at least above average. You say, what's the problem with that? It's all relative then. That's exactly the problem with it. When we compare people, compare ourselves to people horizontally, it produces a bunch of stuff in the human heart. It produces pride and judgment and a sense of entitlement when we come out ahead. And when we come out the loser in it, we get fear, competition, despair. Sometimes we even begin to sabotage those around us, those that we love, or at least root for them to fail so that we can feel better about ourselves. You say, where's that in the text? Look at verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus 
saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who's touching him. He'd know what kind of a woman she is, that she's a sinner. Do you see Simon's arrogance? Do you see his judgment? Do you see his sense of entitlement, his comparison? He's essentially saying, this girl isn't like us, Jesus. She's not like the rest of us. You should know that. You should know that she didn't even warrant an invite to the party, let alone to be associating and touching and close to us. And the implication, what's implied here, is Simon thinks that he deserves it. Simon thinks that he deserves to be around Jesus because he's one of the good people. In fact, I think he's so entitled to it that Jesus has to point out, you didn't even do the common forms of courtesy. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't even give me water for my feet. You didn't greet me with, the, with a kiss of greeting. You see, the problem is this attitude that gets created when our standard is not horizontal, or is, is horizontal instead of vertical. I remember Neil giving this example once, and I thought it was just brilliant, and it stuck with me ever since. But we, we all kind of weigh ourselves on this standard. And maybe you think, like, I'm down here, and my wife is up here. Or maybe it's the opposite. I'm up here, and my wife is down here because you're just confused. <laughs> just a joke. But kind of true. Um, <laughs> but the point is that even if you're up here, and the person you're comparing to is down there, it looks like this is a pretty big gap right now. Like, man, that's about two feet. I'm really doing well. But what you don't realize is that the standard for every one of us, if this is the scale, then it's 100 miles through the ceiling up above us. The standard is perfection. And again, you say, that's kind of depressing, isn't it? No. No, no, no. It's actually freeing. When you realize how high, how high the bar has been set, you stop comparing yourself to other people. You realize that we're all in the same boat. Every one of us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and you're free to actually love people instead of compete with them. And when you realize that the standard is so high that you'll never achieve it, that it's not like you're just missing it, and if you keep trying and keep trying, you might actually get there, you actually stop. And you start to ask for help. And you start to take note of the real mission and the real purpose of Jesus. He came to be a ladder between where we're at and that hundred mile high standard. And I wonder, is this you today? Have you been judging yourself horizontally against everybody else? Living kind of that rat race where every day is either a good day or a bad day, depending on how you're stacking up against everyone else. Do you carry an attitude like Simon's that maybe even subconsciously you think, of course God accepts me. I'm a good person. I'm better than that person or this person. Do you find yourself even rooting for people to fail so that you can feel better about yourself? Or have you stopped and marveled at the chasm that's between here and the standard and recognize, I can never do it. I can never be good enough. I can never pay back what's owed. But I have a God who cancels debts. Who bridges the gap between where I'm at and what the standard asks for. I think a big reason why people want this view that all that matters is that you're a good person. Is it seems like it's very inclusive. 
But I'm telling you, it creates the same thing that it fights against. Well, there's the good people and the bad people. The only all-inclusive in this world is Jesus, who says, all have fallen short. But come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I came to seek and save that which was lost. All right, I've got to move on a little bit. All right, let's look at how Jesus responds to Simon. Verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said, and this part's key. Two people. How many people? Two. Both. Owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. The beginning of this parable is key. Both of these people have debts that they can't pay back. And Jesus does the kindest thing for Simon ever right here. He just kind of wakes him up and he just says, Simon, you've taken your eyes off the fact that you have a debt too, my friend. Neither one of these people in the parable have anything with which to pay back what they owe. And Jesus is saying, you want to know why you don't understand the great love of this woman? It's because you don't recognize that you're in the same desperate predicament that she is. None of us in this room have even a single rusty penny to pay back the debt that we owe. Crossroads. Have we lost sight of this? Our desperate position and the grace that he's given us. Are we still judging others? Let me ask, at the end of the the parable, not the story here. Who's in the better position? The man who owed 50 or the man who owed 500? Neither one of them. Their debts have been both reduced to the same number, zero. Let's look at the sinful, day, the sinful woman's day with Jesus. We looked at the story from Simon's perspective. Let's spend a little bit looking at it from her angle. Who is she? Some say it's Mary, Mary Magdalene, and I went through this, most of my sermon, writing it as Mary, but I read a few things and some people argue that maybe it's not, and I, I wanted to make sure that I actually captured what Luke was doing here, and I think it's very intentional, whether it's Mary or not, and it very well could have been, I think it's intentional that he doesn't give us a name. He allows this woman to be known only by her mistakes, by the sin in her life. Her identity is unclean and shameful. She's a prostitute. Not even worthy of a name in this story here in most people's eyes. But look at her day with Jesus. Look at verse 37. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned. No, she wasn't invited. She didn't get an invite to this party. She didn't hear about it firsthand. She had to find out probably through, through the rumor mill that Jesus was in town and that he was going to this person's house. She learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. I want you to know this is premeditated, and I love it. She actually comes prepared. She's got her jar with us. She knows what she's going to do. She's got the chutzpah to crash this party, and she's thought it through. She knows what it's going to cost her. She doesn't know how this story turns out, remember, too. 
She has the courage to do this, not knowing even how Jesus is going to respond to this act. But I wonder what it was like for her to walk into that room, a room full of people that scorned her. You ever been to a party where there's even just one person there who doesn't like you? It's super uncomfortable. You know, you're telling a story and you're like looking at that person to see how they're responding or making sure that they're not saying bad things about you. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. She goes to a room full of people that despise her, that look down their nose at her, that think that they're better than she is. And what does she do? Verse 38, she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Really, it says she let down her hair. It's capturing the disgrace of it. It was something that was only done in the privacy of your own home, and she's doing it publicly right here. This hair that she had used to ensnare men and entrap people in prostitution. She's now taking down and muddying, cleaning Jesus' feet. And these actions were incredibly costly. I don't want us to miss this. In every area of her life, this day cost her, monetarily. Mark tells us that this perfume was worth a year's wages. That's thousands of dollars that she's just pouring out here. A year's wages, think about what she does. A year of shameful, dishonoring work to pay for this jar. There's a physical and an emotional cost. She's down on her knees, she's weeping, she's getting muddy and dirty, and she's crying out, she's pouring out every bit of emotion and gratitude that she has before Jesus. I'm sure she's exhausted. There's a social cost that's probably steeper still. She endured judgment and sneers and glares from everyone in the room. In this story, she knew it wasn't going to be forgotten. This story would be told to her children, told around the village the day that she crashed the Pharisees' party and made a fool of herself in front of everyone. But there's a fourth cost here, too. There's an employment cost. And I missed this one for a long time. But I think it's the steepest one of all. That jar of perfume was essential to her trade. Back then, they didn't have a lot of hygiene. They weren't able to take showers every day and all that stuff. So this perfume helped her to smell attractive to the clients that she was trying to pick up. This was the biggest tool of her trade that she had and she owned. And when she breaks it and she begins to pour it out on Jesus' feet, what she's essentially saying is, Jesus, I don't know what's next. I don't know what's next for me, but I know that having met you, having experienced you, there's no going back to my old life. And so I'm breaking it, my treasured possession, and I'm pouring it out on your feet. She gave it all to Jesus. And Jesus' response, I love it. He rebukes those who judge her, but he really only says one thing to her. Look at verse 48. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Probably the best thing she could have possibly heard in that moment. And the other guests start to grumble and like, who is this who even forgives sins? But he just says it again in verse 50. 
Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus isn't saying that her sins were forgiven because of her offering. In fact, in the Greek, not to be nerdy, but it's the perfect tense, it means that she was forgiven before this. This was her response. And Jesus is now publicly acknowledging before everyone that this woman has been forgiven. She came in here and you look at her as dirty. You look at her as sinner, but she's leaving as saved. Some of you know what it feels like to be judged. To feel so sinful, so broken that no one could ever love you or accept you. You feel like an outcast before God and before people. And I want you to know something today. You have a God who knows every thought that's ever raced through your mind. Every action that you've ever done. He knows that maybe you're way down here and the standard is way up there. But his arm is not too short to save. He's in the business of forgiving debts. There's nothing too small or too great to be forgiven by our Lord, and the woman knows that. I want to close by just reading Jesus' parable one more time. We looked at it from kind of Simon's angle. We looked at it from the woman's angle. I want you to look at it from your own heart. Verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. What owned him 500 denarii, the other 50? Neither one of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. You want to know who the hero of this story is? It's not the woman. The hero of this story is the moneylender. Each of us in this room today are debtors. The standard has been set, it's perfection. Not one of us has anything to pay down the debt that we have. But this parable shows us God's response to people who come up short. It shows us the mission of Jesus. He came to forgive debts. So I have two questions I want to leave you guys with. One, do you see your debt? Do you see it? Do you see that you can't pay it back? Even the Pharisees who spent their entire lives trying to fulfill every single word of the law came up short. Do you see that you have too? Or are you still trying to be good enough? Stop comparing yourself horizontally. I want you to look today at the standard that's really before us. We have a God who made us in his image who gifted us with all kinds of things, and we rebel time and time and time again. And if that's you today that's seeing that, it's time to come to the master and just let him know you can't pay it back. Nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to your cross I cling. Have you done that? And two, if you've accepted that forgiveness, does it overwhelm you with gratitude like this woman? Is there heat in your relationship with God? This woman responds to her forgiveness in some very real manners. She takes the most expensive thing that she has, her treasured possession, and she breaks it before her Savior and gives it to him. She leaves the profession that she's known her entire life. She leaves her sin and she chases after him. Jesus doesn't even have to tell her, go and sin no more. She's already done that. He just says, Go in peace. Have you done that? Or are there still some things that you need to leave today? 
It's the first Sunday after New Year's. Maybe it's time to put some things on the, on the altar here. In fact, this isn't in my notes. I'm not planning on it, but this space is open today. And this woman came out in front of all kinds of people, and she poured her heart out to God. And I want to invite you guys to do the same if you need to today. You want to know the cure for a cold, re- cold relationship with God for dull, quiet times? Start meditating on the sin in your life and how vicious it really is and how pervasive it is and how much there is and by how big a gap you've missed the mark. And then start meditating on his grace that just forgives debts. Let's pray. God, you are the ultimate money lender. And you forgive us when we have nothing to bring. But I love that at the end of this parable, everyone's balance is zero. But your word goes on, and we don't even stay there. You name us co-inheritors with Christ, adopted as sons and daughters. You lavish us with grace. I pray today, right now, that you would give us a vision of the sin in our life and what it costs to be forgiven. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.